today, if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and flip there. Um, We've been talking about, last week, Brett kind of introduced us to this kind of sermon series within the sermon series about Acts, about the healthy church, um, and some things that embody it, and today we're going to talk about, I think it was the second thing that Brett mentioned last week, which was a healthy uh, church, is a serving church, or a hands church. Um, Really, the church is multifaceted, right? It should embody all of these different characteristics, but today we get to look at a kind of a cool situation that arises and out of a difficulty Something really cool happens. While you're uh, flipping there, I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for the church. And we accept, Lord, um, the limitations of our human ability to bring about perfection. Um, And we also accept the fact that a healthy church isn't perfect. Um, That there's gaps and there's things that we're working through as a community, but I pray, God, that uh, in the same way that that conflict is that tilling of the soil that creates greater depth so that there can be flourishing and growth, God, we pray that conflict and challenges can lead to us having a greater picture of you, a greater love for each other and a greater care for each other, Jesus. And so um, I pray, God, that you would bless us today, that you would be with us, God. I pray, come into this gathering. We know your Holy Spirit is inside of us, God, that's living within us, God. We know that this building is not um, the temple, God, but we, we as your followers, we are the temple of your Holy Spirit, God. Um, we carry that with us, Jesus, and so I pray, God, that you would challenge us today, help us to understand the beauty of who you are and, and the beauty that's in the imperfection um, of the church, God. Um, help us to, to live and love each other and you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do something really quick. I'm sorry this is a little bit uncomfortable, but too bad. We're doing it anyway. Uh, I want you to think back to when you were a child. How many of you grew up in the 90s? Get them up nice and high. All right. Make sure everybody feels old. Okay. Yeah. All right. How many of you uh, raised kids in the 90s? All right. So it's your fault. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, I want you to think about back to when you used to play soccer as like a little kid, okay? And there were certain things that happened at every single soccer game. And I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to picture the end of the soccer game, okay? You get together with your team, you're huddling around, all of a sudden someone brings around these little brown paper bags, and inside of them is one of these, look up at the screen, Come on, Joe. Yeah! Anybody? Did you think about that? If you didn't think about that, it's because you were thinking about this other thing, Joe. Okay? Now, I, I, did, a little, I did a deep dive on the Capri Sun yesterday. Can we go back to the Capri Sun really quick? Uh, I'm not a strawberry kiwi person myself. I am more of a, uh, I think it's like a Pacific cooler. That was my, yeah, that was my flavor of choice, right? Kiwi, strawberry, just I don't even understand how those things work together. I don't understand what the, what the combination is there. Um, but have you ever thought about the fact that a Capri Sun isn't clear? Like the packaging isn't clear, okay? So since like 1968 or 69, they're making Capri Suns, and like they're all, they've always been all natural, right? Like Capri Suns may be the only reason kids from the 90s survived, Okay? I don't know if I got any vitamin C besides Capri Suns in my life, okay? So they're clear, but you think about it because inside of it is this like really so, sort of nutritious, highly in sugar, but let's just 
forget about that for a second, um, and focus on it's the all-natural deal, right? But then if you start pour it out, it's just clear, right? And I wonder if the reason why they put it in this package was because no one would buy it if it was just clear. Like, this can't be strawberry kiwi. There's no color to it. So I'm going to buy the, like, Snapple that's, like, bright red. Like, that's apple juice. I don't know if you've ever made apple juice before, but it is not bright red. That never freaked us out, though. We were like, okay, sure, this is fine. It looks like apple juice. Let's do it, all right? And I think about that in our, in our conversation. Uh, yesterday, my son was drinking one, like, across from me, a Capri Sun, and I was like, one, they still make those. Two, it's still a soccer thing. And, like, now my son and I are, like, bonded because he's had a Capri Sun. I've had a Capri Sun. It's like, this is it, man. This is your childhood. This is what it's going to be like for the next 20 years. Capri Suns, man, that's where it's at, right? You love it, okay? And there's certain things about our life as kids that just were staples about our existence, Right? Maybe there were some nuances, but we can all kind of identify with the idea we got done with our soccer game, we finished up, and we had orange slices, and we had Capri Suns, and we had Rice Krispie Treats. In fact, I lost a tooth in a Rice Krispie Treat one time at a soccer game. It was, it was when I was really young. I was, it wasn't recently. Don't freak out, okay? Uh, but I did do the orange slices. The orange slices were too much work. I've always found oranges to be kind of laborious. So I just kind of was like, eh, give me the Capri Sun and the, and the Rice Krispie Treat. And like I said, the only vitamin C I got was from that thing. So, but the point of it is, I think we can look back at our life and find moments that we can identify with other people, right? We were the ones giving the Capri Suns. We were the ones drinking the Capri Suns. And there are things about our life that are just staples about growing up. And all the other stuff that kind of like changes or whatever, there's certain things that unify us together. Um, and as a church... To make a huge leap here from Capri Suns to the church, uh, is that there's certain things that church identified with back in the first century that we still identify with today, that are still a part of who we are. Now, some things have changed. Okay, the sugar content in the Capri Sun has gone down as all of the crazy 2000 millennial parents are like, kids can't have sugar, they'll die. Um, and then we like, they, after the first one, we're kind of like, ah, it's fine, just give it to them, right? Um, but the point of it is, there's, there's part of our life that is just kind of uniting. And yeah, things have changed, branding has changed, but for the most part, there's, it's pretty much still the same. The church faced issues. It had to figure out solutions. There are certain structures that exist. And the great thing about Acts, as a, like, as a historian, yeah. okay, as a, as a seventh grade social studies teacher, that makes more sense, uh, <laughs> I find that Acts is awesome because it gives us this historical narrative of the church. It doesn't command us. It doesn't say, hey, your church does this. If you don't do this church stuff, blah. Instead, it says, this is what the church just did as its action, as its outpouring. Things happened and they reacted to it. Um, I'm a big fan of um, like biopics. Like sort of movies about people and individuals and biographies and autobiographies. I always found them super fascinating. And one thing I love about them is when you were growing up, you may have heard like a narrative about an individual, but then as you read about them and you learn about them, like, this is way more complex than I thought. I saw the stuff that was very like flashy and was attention grabbing, but now there's all this stuff about this individual. They learn about their life and how they grew up and what shaped them, and you go, oh, there's actually a lot to this situation that is new. And I think for the church to look at Acts and go, there's this historical narrative that happens in the church that gives us a picture of just what the early church did. Um, and it helps us understand how the church identified, how the church grew, how the church solved problems. So let's look at Acts chapter 6. Here we go. Now in these days, when the disciples, that would be like a term for followers of Jesus, were increasing in number, a complaint 
by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permianus. We're actually going to name our son Permianus. That's kind of weird. And, no, I'm kidding. And Nicholas, Nicholas and the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, something interesting happens here. And uh, it's worth kind of pausing and just capturing this moment in the first century church. Remember, they're reacting to what is just happening in this movement. They don't have any framework to understand. They don't even have, like, think about it. They don't have a Bible to read. Like, I just want to just, like, go to the bare minimum of a church. They don't have that. They're completely dependent upon the apostles who have been with Jesus or are, like, one step away from Jesus to teach them about who he was. And then they're applying that wisdom to the church. They're like, well, things are happening, and we just got to figure out what we're supposed to do as a church. I think it's really important to remember that about Acts. This is 2,000 years ago, before anything that we have, any technology we have exists, and yet the issues that they're facing are very similar. So let's just go back. We're going to kind of plow through this and do some nerdy stuff, and then we'll kind of get into some application. Um, now, in those days, the disciples were increasing numbers of verse 1, and a complaint, which doesn't happen much in churches anymore, Let that sit and start making laugh at themselves for a little bit, you know? (laughs) (laughs) By the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because they were being neglected in the daily distribution. So I want us to capture, okay, so let's go back to this really quick. Verse verse one. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the windows were not the way they wanted them to be in the nursery. Wait, no, that's not what it says. Hold on. A complaint arose Hellenists against the Hebrews because the music was too loud. No, that's not what it was either. Okay, hold on. What was it? Oh, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the Hellenists would have been um, Jews who probably lived outside of Jerusalem, and they were ethnically Jewish, but they were Greek in behavior and thought. So they're more Greek in like their behavior and language than they were Jewish in the sense of how they behaved. And the Hebrews are more of like your standard Jewish Jerusalem, and they were Jewish, and not just in ethnicity, but also in thought and behavior. So you have two different, essentially, ethnic groups that exist in the church in Jerusalem. And the complaint arises, a murmuring, which, by the way, in the Septuagint, to go all the way back to like when Moses was wandering the desert, this is the same word they used for when the Jewish people were complaining about, like, ah, oh, there's not enough bread, and this isn't what I wanted it to be, okay? And they have the same kind of complaint, and they arise and they go, listen, here's the problem. Our widows, who you've claimed to be caring for, are not getting what they need in the gathering, okay? In the daily distribution, or you could say daily service, okay? So these two groups have a conflict. The Hellenists and the Jews, Hellenists and the Jews raise it against the, the Hebrew, the, the, yeah, the Hebrews, the Hebrew Jews, okay? And the daily distribution, in some translation, we have this daily distribution of food, and it literally means the daily service. Okay, the daily service. It's this word, um, di- it's like a deacon, diakonos. Is that right? 
I put it phonetically in here, but I didn't put it in this section, which was really stupid of me. All right. Uh, anyway, it's this daily service. See where we get the word deacon from. And so what's the solution? They have this issue. What's the response? The disciples, they bring the 12, summon the full number of disciples. The full number of disciples are Christians. Remember, disciples is that term for Christians. That, that word Christian doesn't exist. Think about the full church. They bring them together. They said, listen, it's not going to work. It's not right for us to give up preaching and the word of God, preaching of the word of God to serve tables. I, I want to notice what the, what the apostles choose to do there. They don't throw their hands up in the air and go, you people are never going to get along. I'm quitting the ministry. I'm done. They don't pack it up. They're too close in proximity of Jesus to do something that foolish, right? They've seen Jesus. They know Jesus is real, so they're not ready to go, ah, you know, this doesn't matter. I'm out of here. You all can't get along. I'm out. I'm not going to deal with it. It's not what I signed up for. Instead, they go, okay, we've got to figure out a solution. And they're realistic about it. They recognize the fact that their time and their context is limited. So they say, it's, it's just not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's not right that we should have to divide ourselves between these two tasks. And we'll revisit all this later on with some noticings, but I just want to get that picture of what's happening. This is a dilemma they're facing. The people need them to meet their needs. The people are coming to the gathering, expecting to be served, they're not getting served. The disciples are going, we don't have the margin of time to do this and preach the word. Okay? I think the tone of how we approach that conversation is super important, by the way. We'll get back to that in a second, though. Therefore, they say, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, and we'll appoint them to this duty of serving the tables. But we will devote ourselves, we will focus our uh, energies to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Everybody was okay with that. You're like, when was the last time that happened in like any context, right? Everybody was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Not laughing. That means you're like concerned a little bit. That's okay. All right. And they chose, and they, they said, that, well, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The third time that word ministry is mentioned. All right. Diakonia. That's what it is. Diakonia, that's the word, okay? This word is mentioned three times, this idea of ministry, both in the serving of the tables and later on when they say the ministry of the word. So where we get our word ministry from is from this word, diakonia, okay? It's mentioned three times. They appoint seven men, seven men with Greek names, which is interesting considering that the complaint arose from the Greek portion of the church. And what's the result? Verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I want you to pause for a second and think about this. How many of you are like run your own business? Okay. I'm guessing that if you want to get better at your job or running your business, you could read a bunch of books about how to get better at the business that you have in whatever context that is. But I'm willing to wager that if you want to get better at your job, or better at your art of teaching, like for me, what I find is I can read a book, and that's really helpful. Okay, yeah, I see that. But I'm not going to understand unless I see it in action, right? So if I go and observe or sit with somebody, say, talk with somebody who runs a business, say, how do you tackle this kind of stuff? It's really helpful to me as a teacher. If I want to get better at my job as a teacher, I'll go and observe a really great teacher 
and go, okay, I see what they're doing. And I don't take it back and go, okay, I'm just going to do everything that they did in my context, with my personality. I go, okay, I take the principles of what they came up with, and I'm going to apply it to what I'm doing and who I am. And the book of Acts allows us to do that. Okay, so in other words, we read and examine the early church world and the successful early church, and we as a congregation in Redmond in 2022 get the opportunity to chew on that and adapt these principles, which are not necessarily commands, to our context. Some things are going to transfer really nicely. There's going to plug and play, boom, boom, right there. And some, for a variety of reasons, need to be tweaked to our context. However, we can take this imagery and historical narrative of Acts chapter 6 and look at our church in Redmond, Oregon in 2022 and ask ourselves, does our church look like this? And if not, why? So what I want us to do is kind of take this passage of Acts and turn it into four or five noticings. Not commands, just what do we notice about what's going on in the church, okay? And what I want to do before we do that is give you some time on your own to just think for a second. If you can think of one word to describe the church as a concept, what would it be? So think about that for a second. One word to describe the church and what it should be. Give you some time to think. We're sitting quiet for just a little bit. I know it's awkward. Let it simmer. Let's hear him. Fire him out. Evangelism. Evangelism. Family. Family. Accepting. Accepting. Community. Good. Biblical. Biblical. Life. Life. Anything else? Fellowship. Fellowship. Youth. Youth. Beauty. Got it. Equipping. Equipping. Great. How many of you are doing those things? Completely? <laughs> 70% is fine. It's still passing. Uh, the reason why I bring that up is I think, like, if I'm honest and I'm guilty of this, we have this, like, picture of the church that's supposed to do everything. And I don't think we look at ourselves and go, I'm supposed to be doing that. And that's not to say that you're wrong. I think the church should embody all of those things, absolutely. But the church is a community. Are you doing what you need to do? Am I doing what I need to do to build that community? The church is equipping. Am I equipping somebody or am I being equipped? Here's the reality. If I plucked you out of this gathering and put you in some cool time portal and just sent you to the first century church and plopped you down in this gathering, I think you would be pretty baffled by what's happening. First of all, you've got to show up to a gathering that's in secret. It's not a public thing. So that's the first thing. You're not like rolling down the street in your car, coming into a big building, playing loud music. You're having to sneak into some place to be with other people. The second thing that happens is this. You walk in and people are just saying what they need. And people are meeting those needs. Oh, you have an issue going on with your health? Let me, let me help you. Oh, you, have, you need money to do this? Let me help you. Oh, you need food to do this? Let me help you. Okay? It's not a stage of somebody up here teaching a sermon for 20, 25 minutes or an hour if you're super unfortunate. Okay? It's actually people coming in and serving each other. We call this church, I'm serious, listen to this, 
We call this thing a church service. Are you serving right now? No. So it's not, and that's not to make you feel guilty at all. Not to make you feel guilty at all, but it's to say that our narrative around what church is is very different than what the church was in the first century. Sergio brings the coffee. He serves us by blessing us with that. There's people downstairs that are suffering through the kids' ministry right now, okay? <laughs> suffering for the gospel, literally just crowns just getting dropped on them in heaven, just like, oh my gosh, it's coming, all right? While we're up here partaking, and so is the service aspect for you to come and consume or is instead to come and take part in. So I ask that question because I've heard a lot, like the church needs to be better at how it puts out a product on a Sunday morning. Like we're some sort of like cosmic hamburger that we're supposed to like distribute out. Like gotta make sure it's right. Well, all that does pervade the idea that as a church we're called to come here and take and consume instead of exist and partake in and serve. There's a lot of differences there. You don't have a Bible. Your, your, your whole focus is this one person who's literally been with this guy, Jesus, and he's going to tell you about what it's like to walk with Jesus. You're not going to read a scripture. He's just going to talk about his experience with following Jesus. That's it. And you go, okay, that's why we're here. And he's going to go, okay, who needs something? We're going to sell all. That's what they said in Acts chapter 2. They sold all that they have. Why? To distribute to the needs of the saints. I sold all this stuff so I could give it to somebody else. Is that how we view the church right now? Or is it a place to come and consume? And I don't let anybody feel guilty about that. Okay, because it's not necessarily our fault. It is the 2,000 year gap from the first century church to now. And it's our way of doing things that has caused us to exist with this mindset. I come to church, I sit, I drink my coffee, I put money in the offering box so that the people on staff can do ministry. You would not see that in the first century church. Instead, you would see was the people who were at the gathering doing ministry, serving each other. So this narrative is about the fact that there is a, there is a Tension that exists for the apostles. They go, like, I want you to think about this, what they talk about here. So notice the first thing I want you to notice is this. Okay, number one, let's notice how this passage uses the word ministry, diakonia, service. This word is used three times, twice as a noun and once as a verb. It's first used in the distributing of service of food. Then it's used in the verb of serving tables. And then finally, it's used in the ministry of the word. Okay? This means that in essence... Ministry or service is multifaceted in the church. There are ministries happening simultaneously. The ministries of practical needs and those of doctrinal and theologically training needs. But this passage does not imply that one is more important than the other. I think that sometimes when we read this verse in verse 2, they would hear it like this. The twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables? As if it's beneath them. It's not. And that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, it doesn't work. 
These guys, these 12 disciples, are the only evidence we have about Jesus. And they can't spend half their time distributing needs at tables because they literally are talking about Jesus. So they're talking about the fact that it's just not right that we divide ourselves among this. We, in other words, what they're saying is we need help to do this. We need people to stand up that are wise, mature people to help distribute the needs of the saints and serve the people in the church. I think the issue, I would argue, the issue comes from like our, our separation, these two are feeling like the preaching of the word is higher in gifting and in importance than the ministry to the saints. Why it's more important comes from the fact that we live in this westernized society, an individualist society that's so infatuated with charisma and looks and ability. Our culture thinks that someone is more credible if they're a good speaker and or are good looking. And there are all sorts of surveys to indica- indicate that people trust people that are attractive more. This means our society is built on the fact that we naturally trust and listen to people who we like looking at and who we like hearing from that are smooth talkers. We really have like a politician upon this stage than a preacher or a pastor. That's more natural for us. Okay? So it's not the fact that church says that preaching the word is more important than ministry to the saints. What it means is we, we have done that. We have made that our thing. We've elevated preachers and teachers to this high, elevated place where they can do no wrong, and the focus of the service is the 50-minute sermon in the middle of it, and that's why we come to church. However, the early church doesn't look like that. The early church is simple, single-minded, and focused on making more disciples, and for those who are called to minister by teaching, they can't get bogged down in the practical needs. I want you to think about this for a second, the idea of ministry and the nature of how we view it in the church. Now, I think that all of us would go, Brett's the lead pastor at this church. If you don't know, Brett's right here. He has a goatee. He's a good-looking guy. He's right here, all right? Don't listen to what Michael says. He's good-looking, right? All right, so. uh, He is the lead pastor at this church. But he's not the only minister. Everybody in this room is a minister, you're called to ministry. You're called to be in ministry. Let me just put it this way, okay? Let's just use, it. Let's use an analogy. I got this from Francis Chan, so it's super good, okay? Let's say that Brett isn't a pastor, okay? Let's say he's a personal trainer, which would be on brand for Brett. He's a strong guy, okay? He's a burly guy. I live in Primeville, okay? <laughs> and let's say he's, a, he's your personal trainer, all right? And so you get up, you pay him the money, you go to the gym with Brett, and he goes, hey, today we're going to run on the treadmill for 30 minutes, and we're going to do, I don't go to the gym, so we're going to do these, and these, and some of these, okay? And uh, so you go to the gym, all right? And so you're going to do this stuff, okay? And then he says, okay, Brett, the Brett just says, all right, take a seat. And then Brett starts doing it. And that's it. You're like, why did I even come here? Exactly. Doesn't make sense, does it? So why is it as a pastor we view that differently? Oh, Brett does the ministry. Kalen does the ministry. Carson, when he teaches, does the ministry. Doesn't work in that profession. Doesn't work here. Our, the, the goal of being up here and teaching is just to equip you guys to love Jesus more and to equip you guys to do the ministry. That's what it says in Ephesians. My role as a teacher is to teach you guys how to do the ministry. Okay, 
So I think it's important that we understand that the word service does not mean that one is more important than the other just because it's listed afterwards. What it means is that church thrives when there's multifaceted people. Some people are serving in these practical areas and some people are serving in these gifted areas. I know for some of you, to get up here on stage would be like a slow death. If I say, hey, you're teaching tomorrow, you're like, no, please, don't, I can't do that. All right, please don't make me do that. Me? Let's go. I'm ready. Throw me up there. Put me on a stage. I got it. No problem. That's because that's where God's gifted me. You may view that as more important, but it's not more important than the person who brings the coffee on Sunday morning. Or the person that stays afterwards and cleans the place up. In order for you to serve as a church and to thrive, you need ministry and you need people that are going to do the ministry. Okay? Which means you need people to stand up and take on that role with us. These pastors, these, these apostles and acts are saying, please come, help us. And instead of looking at one ministry as more important than another, we should look at the reason why we do church, which brings me to my second noticing. Second, notice the nature of service in the early church gatherings. We talked about this a lot. What if when you come to church, it's just people shouting out what they need and people meeting those needs? What if fifth Sunday happened every Sunday? Kaylin's like having an aneurysm. She heard this downstairs. Ah! No, okay. Uh, But what if, what if, what if that was just normal? People come in and go, who has a need? Okay, who can meet that need? And that's just what happens. And somebody goes up and says, hey, let's talk about this Jesus guy and how he's impacted my life. Would you still show up? Would you still partake in that? Because something would be required out of you in that situation. Not like sign up on planning center to serve the kids once a Sunday. I mean like actually being like, oh my gosh, so-and-so has a need, I can meet that need. Their car broke down, I can give them a car. They have some medical needs, I can help pay for those. What if that was just normal? The reason why it blows our mind when that happens is because it's not normal. I had a need and somebody met my need. Whoa, that's crazy. Yeah, because it doesn't happen all the time. But what if it did? Well, if that was just a normal gathering, it makes me think a lot about why we come and do church. Are we coming to consume or are we coming to give? Are we coming to absorb or are we coming to partner? Third, notice how the church serves each other when in conflict. Okay? Serve each other when in conflict. A complaint arises, early church, this, this issue is steeped in like racial and ethnic tension that happens. And uh, what do they do? They don't split, they don't fracture, they don't leave a bad review, they don't murmur in their community groups about it. Instead, they together, they have an honest dialogue, and they figure out a solution. Whoa, what? The church comes together, and we go, hey, we got this problem that's going on right now. We got to figure out how we're going to fix it. Here's our idea. Okay. Sounds good. Looking at bread a lot, I just get, I'm getting like a, good, a good vibe from bread about this, okay? But the point of it is that what I'm trying to say is the church globally doesn't deal with disagreements in a way that's healthy. Instead, it's kind of embarrassing how the church chooses to deal with disagreements, right? And not like losing to the Padres after you won 101 games, like embarrassing, all right? Or 110 games. I mean, like a weird aunt on Facebook's embarrassing rant, kind of like embarrassing, right? Where you're like, oh yeah, we're related through marriage kind of situation, all right? It's just kind of like you want to distance yourself from it. You're like, ah, like I just want to get away from how the church does that, and I just want to do my own thing over here. But the problem is the church has got issues. We have to figure out how we're going to 
come together to solve those things. Okay, so we need to develop a listening ear. One commentator said this, we've got to develop a listening ear, we've got to accept responsibility where we failed, and we've got to take immediate action. What if when something arose in the church, Brett just got up here and said, hey, listen, we're facing this issue. Here's our idea. What do we think? I just like, can see Brett's just like, I don't know about doing that. Okay, I'm not going to roll out a new policy. What I am saying is that the idea that, that people can come together and find a solution together is valuable. If something comes up in our family, like in Kayla and Maya's family with our kids, I don't look for somebody else to come in and fix it. Like, can I just outsource my parenting to somebody else? No, we deal with it because it's a family. We figure out what we're going to do to fix it. What if the church looked like that? Something's going on? We need to figure out a way to deal with that. And I could get up here and list a million different ways that you could help people right now that are in need in our society, whether it's clean drinking water, whether it's hunger, whether it's a financial hardship outside of our church. But listen, this is our community. This is who God has put us in relationship with. How are we going to help each other? Because the Bible says that's the first place. It's the first thing. How are we going to help and serve each other? So as we kind of like come to a close, I just want to talk about one more notice, and that's this fourth one. Notice the nature of service for the church leader. The church needs the people in the body to step up to support the mission, to love people and serve people. Leaders are limited because they're human, and time is a precious commodity. And the only way that people will hear the gospel is from people preaching and speaking it. That's the issue for this early church, right? The only people who are going to hear the gospel is through these guys talking about the good news of Jesus. They need people to help with their mission on that. Leaders are not infallible. Leaders don't have some magical, like, infinite tank of stuff that they can always pour out. They don't have that. One of the reasons why we, we as like a church like kind of came together to kind of send on a sabbatical is because we saw that we needed rest. We've been going hard for nine years. So go just take some time, reflect, and get some rest and come back. And then people left because of that. I was like, are you serious? Like, heaven forbid someone takes some time to regather with their family. You know what I mean? It's unreal that we look at leaders and go, they don't need rest. He can go all the time. He can work 70-hour weeks. Go for it. That's mind-blowing to me that we have that expectation on pastors. In the corporate world, sure, fine. Work 70-hour weeks and go hard. Sacrifice everything else. But for a pastor, that doesn't make any sense to me. So now, Brett's here. He's rested. And we're like, okay, great. Now we can focus on the mission at hand. And we can allow for margin to take place. But it doesn't change the fact that we're all supposed to be in this thing together. And that's awesome. And I think this church does an awesome job of that, by the way. I'm not saying we don't. I'm just saying, like, there's, there's a, a lot of awesome people that give up their Sundays to work with kids that lead worship as a volunteer. That's amazing. Can we do more? Can we partner more in that conversation? Can we, can we make a stand to go, okay, I, I think the church is this vibrant community of people serving each other and loving each other through meeting needs. Can we do that? And that's an important question for us to answer. As we close, a couple things. One, I want to make a distinction between true service and self-righteous service, and then we'll get out of here. Um, there's, a few months ago, I taught about service. Um, we were talking about the disciplines. 
And one thing that Richard Foster brought up in his book was this distinction between true service and self-righteous service. So I want to kind of point, there's two distinctions here because it's really easy in the church because we're an image-obsessed culture to serve out of gratification for myself, but that can't happen. So there's a, there's a difference between self-righteous service and true service, all right? True service comes from being in step with the Spirit instead of human effort. It seeks the small task as more important. It is the, like, every day showing up and getting the church service set up and putting the coffee together and loving people and no one else knows that you're doing that. Oh, I gave money to that charity. I just want everybody to know that. What if you just did it without telling anybody? And it wasn't because you got a tax reward. You just did it because it was right. It requires external rewards. It requires external gratification, but true service is content and hiddenness. Nobody sees it. Righteous service is highly concerned with results. True service is free from the need to calculate that. I don't need to know if there's any results. I just serve because it's what I'm supposed to do. Self-righteous service picks and chooses whom to serve. True service is indiscriminate in its ministry. Well, I don't know what they're going to do with that money. I can't serve them. It doesn't matter. If you're called to serve, you serve them. Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims, good, bad, the other. Ministry simply because there is a need. Self-righteous service is temporary. True service is a lifestyle. Self-righteous service is insensitive. It can withhold service when it's time, give people space. And self-righteous service fractures community, breaks it apart. But true service builds community. Do we have a proper understanding of ministry? Or have we fallen into the worldly focus on charisma and image when it comes to your church gathering? What is your ability or margin to serve in this season of your life? Kayla and I have three small kids, and our, our margin to serve is very limited because of that. Okay? So I'm not asking for you to sacrifice your family on the altar of doing ministry at all. I don't think that's biblical. But I am asking you to ask a question where, is, where do you have margin? I get up here and teach on every once in a while on a Sunday because I want to help Brett. Like, I want to serve Brett by taking, having to take a Sunday where he can just come to church and do this gathering and it frees up his week to minister more. Does that cost me something? Yeah, it cost me just a couple hours a night when I could be parenting my children. I don't. My wife does it. It's amazing. Okay? But for those two hours, I was studying the scripture and getting up to teach on a Sunday. Does it cost me something? Yeah, it cost me something. But I do it because there's a service in it. I don't care if you guys think I'm a good speaker or not. I'm doing it because I want to serve. And this is the ability that God has given me. If you're somebody who has a heart for kids, that's a gifting. Serving it. If you're somebody who um, has a heart to think, I just want to make the ga- I just want to make the place just a great um, space for people to come and gather by cleaning it. That is a ministry, and it is not less or more important than what I'm doing up here. Arguably, that's probably more important. But where's the margin? Where do you have space to be able to do that? And I'm talking about here in the church. I'm not talking about out there. I could go to a food shelter and, you know, do that. Food shelter. What's it? Holding, sheltering food. You can go to a homeless shelter or a food bank. Like, you can go do that. Yeah, chill. Good. Great. But what about the church? What about here? What can you do here? This is the first place it has to happen. Third, where have you placed, where have I placed, where have we placed an unhealthy expectation on our leader or leaders that is being displayed in critical and destructive behavior towards them rather than active participation in the ministry with them? If you're critical of the church, 
which I have done many, many times. I'm guilty of this. It's because I have a consumer mindset. We critique what we consume when it's not what we want. Right? If I go to a restaurant and I get a bad meal, I critique that restaurant because of what I was supposed to get. I didn't get what I wanted. If we have a consumer mindset, we'll be critical. So if you're critical at church, it means you have a different mindset of the church. It's critical because it's consumer-minded. I'm not getting what I want. And that's a problem. And if you're critical of the church, consider what the source of that criticism is. This is from Francis Chan. Many people want to change the church and church leaders, but it's often motivated by personal preference rather than biblical conviction. Is your criticism of the church a biblical conviction or is it a personal preference? If it's a personal preference, get over it. Okay? I have all sorts of personal preferences. Sure. But this is not the same kind of situation. People leave churches because they're motivated by personal preference, not a biblical conviction. There's a call on us to stay and be and be a part of the church. There is for us to leave. Come and be a part of it and partner in the solution of the goal that we're working towards instead of critiquing it and criticizing it and tearing it down. Obviously, this is something that's like really close to my heart. I would love for the church and myself, myself, I know this, I read these questions and I go, this is like, yeah, I mean, I spent half my life being critical of the church as I was a part of it. So I want us to get out of that mindset of going like, what can the church do for me? At the same time, that's actually an appropriate question to ask. As part of experiencing service, it's also being served. And I want us to have that, I just encourage us as followers of Jesus to have a mindset that's different about ministry. You're called to it. You're called to partake, and you're called to partake in it here. And that God would free us out of our mindset of like, well, it's for the leaders, they do the ministry, and I just come and I consume and I go. We've got to get out of that mindset. Where has God gifted you? Where has he given you margin? And where can you step into that? That is a call for us to, to think about that idea, that call to holiness. So I'm going to pray. Jesus, Lord, we come before you knowing that we are so limited. We come before you knowing that we are so selfish. And we come before you knowing that we've, we've really obsessed over the sins of like, that are the, the hot button issues, Jesus, but we haven't addressed this sin of selfishness in our own heart that makes us look at the church like it's something that we're supposed to come and consume instead of a place to serve and to be served, Jesus. We ask, God, by the power of your spirit that you would call us out of that mindset, which is, and there's no other word for it, to be selfish is sinful, God. Our love is directed at ourself more than you and your people. God, call us out of that 
and call us into a newness of ministry. May we be equipped. May we dig in. May we serve and be a church where their hands and feet of the ministry are doing what they're supposed to be doing in the lives of the people here in the church, God. And may that be a fluorescent beacon to our community and the world. You are a good God who loves his people and who has something really great in store for us. Help us to walk in step with you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Remember, church, God has called us into his life. He's invited us into his reality. We have not invited him into ours. We are invited into God's reality. And in God's reality, the people of God do ministry. I hope that you're blessed and I hope that today as we sing, you can worship a God who is good and has called you into something greater. Amen. At this time, we're gonna play a couple songs and tables will be open to come grab your communion and then we'll take partake together and bread will come up. Let's get to it. Let's stand.